Welcome to Meat Bone Express, the filmmaking podcast. Today on the program is filmmaker Mark Savage, and we're talking about his new film, Purgatory Road. Welcome to the program, Mark. Hi, Michael. Good to be on the show. Now, uh, Purgatory Road is a flashy horror film. What's it like making an an American horror film, an an American genre film? Uh, You know, shooting in the U.S. has been interesting. I mean, this is about the fourth film I've made in the U.S. in the last um, five years or so. And, you know, one of the reasons why I, you know, I came over here was um, because, you know, I was just finding that the Australian film scene was kind of non-existent. It was more a bureaucracy than an industry. So I just didn't really feel like fitted very well into a bureaucracy because I always pretty much raise money for my films just privately. You know, I could never get any money from film bodies and that type of thing. So coming over here, you know, I've sort of in a way doing the same thing, you know, raising money privately with investors. So, uh, you know, shooting over here, you know, different states have different, you know, different issues. But ultimately, you know, this one was shot in Mississippi. One of the reasons for going to Mississippi was that they have a good rebate situation in terms of, you know, you spend a certain amount on the movie and you get a certain amount back. In Mississippi's case, it was about 35%. But probably even more so than that was that Mississippi was really the ideal kind of location for the story as it's got a religious context. And um, the sort of crazy concept of a um, confessional in Mississippi, a mobile confessional, is something that's sort of believable in Mississippi. But it wouldn't be believable in somewhere like California. You know, people would say, "Well, you know, there's just no no way anyone would would buy that." Not in that godless godless country of, of California of uh, of LA. <laughs> That'd be a, a completely different story. Very different story because the original concept was California, but that was um, quickly changed when I just you know you know thought about it and thought, well, because yeah, because I wanted originally to set it here on. Um, a spectacular area, um, Highway 1, which is near Big Sur, kind of like up towards Northern California. The van was going to be driving the, you know, the Big Sur area. But um, the more I worked on it, the more I put it together, I thought, this is ridiculous. It's got to be in the south. So we got approached by some people in Mississippi. You say, why don't you come down and have a look here? So I looked at the locations. They were great. Um, we also could shoot much cheaper in Mississippi. We also had really great amount of people to draw on in terms of cast because I also wanted a few people that were kind of freaky looking, a few people, you know, who had, you know, who were deformed. Um, you know, so from that point of view, it, it was a good place to shoot. And, you know, I mean, the crews are good. I mean, I mean, to me, the crew's only really as good as really each individual member. You know, you can easily say, oh, you know, crews in this area are great. Well, it really depends on the way you treat your crews, um, who you get, you try to weed out the troublemakers. Is there any noticeable difference in the culture and ethic from, say, comparing Australian crews to American crews? Is there anything you can kind of generalise about? Probably not. I could general. I mean, I could probably generalise more if I was talking about, you know, films that are more sort of, you know, government-funded, you know, um, fun, films in Australia that have government money where they we're a lot more concerned with content and you know you can do this you can't do that are you talking about politics yeah i mean there's a certain amount of politics i think in in australia especially on films that are you know government funded i mean not that i ever really did many films that were government funded but i you know i mean i did a couple of things where i got a bit of script funding 
And of course, it only ever kind of went off the rails when I decided to go in a particular direction. And then, you know, the powers that be, you know, then decided, well, we sort of don't want to be involved now because you're going in this particular direction. So that's why that's why I say, you know, the Australian film industry, it's more like, to me, an Australian film bureaucracy because it's very, it's very bureaucratic and you're probably in the minority if you're making features that are not in some way government funded, unless you're doing really low budget features, which I think in a way is great because, I mean, that's, that's what I, I did for quite a long time. At least then you can make the kind of films you want to make and, you know, just, what, you just, you know, fuck what anyone thinks about what you're doing. I mean, the only way to make good films, you've got to make films that are, that are I think, true to your own nature, you know, that are an expression of yourself. And I, I think in the U.S., the difference is, is that, and it's good and bad, in the U.S., the film business is a business, so they don't, there's not that much concern about the subject because it's like, well, if it's going to make money, then everyone's, you know, everyone's for it. But then at the same time, you don't have, um, you know, any other kind of funding to fall back on that they do in Australia and the U.K. and Europe do. Um, that's not, that's just not, uh, it, it doesn't happen here. But at the same time, you can, people are a little bit more, I would say, definitely more eager to invest in movies. They don't see it as something that's like some weird sort of investment, even though it's still still risky, still very risky, you know, when you're getting investors. I mean, some films don't need investors. Other films do need investors. Like on this one, there's no way I could have made this film just on my own money, you know. There was just no way because I wanted to make it at a certain scale. There was a, you know, I had my script and I wanted to you know, have a certain um, production value on the on the movie that was kind of like an almost counter to the events that were happening. I was kind of like wanted to do something that was kind of like aesthetically kind of beautiful, but at the same time, the subject matter at times is kind of repulsive. And I I like that I like that contrast because it sort of like comes from my love of like Japanese, um, you know, art. You know, say erotic, grotesque, or you know, guru art where you're doing aesthetically beautiful stuff but but the, the often the subject matter is kind of grotesque or uh, erotic grotesque so I that's kind of like my style I actually wanted to ask about uh, style and that's why I said it was a, a flashy uh, because of the use of color and a lot of uh, noir style and, and it, I saw a lot of um, uh, the, the, the noir films that were being made in the 80s and 90s, even straight to video, that were really, um, really strong uh, uh, visually because th th they, were, they were quite authentically noir using a small budget uh, to sort of create style. And, but that was in the color era, so they, they were often these sort of neon noir pictures. Often, like, I don't know if you've seen the films about PM Entertainment. Oh, yes, 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 J Joseph Murphy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's a film uh, called Maximum Force uh, that uh, um, ha has in, in, the, in the middle of the film uh, a strange kind of purgatory, actually, um, in, in this warehouse, and, and it has this lighting um, in this huge space that's orange on one side and, and I think a, a, a sort of blue on the other. And it was really interesting to see in your film uh, that your uh, sort of contained space uh, which is much smaller, which is this uh, van which is traveling around um, uh, and, and, and people are sort of paying their sort of penance to a priest or worse things happening, um, was using a similar aesthetic choice but in a smaller space 
Um, and uh, th th that's that's one of the things that that really made me think um, uh, that that yeah, this this shares a lot with the sort of uh, uh, this the, the noir films of the eighties and nineties. Um, as as you are sort of you know authentically um, uh, you know using those noir and expressionist sort of ideas. I would agree that the um, the crime, but yeah, the sort of like lighting. Yeah, it definitely comes more from yeah more from say crime films than 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 horror. Um, probably, and what you would sort of say the sort of um, almost kind of like the kind of like the pulp crime covers. Of, you know, of magazines in the kind of like the 40s and the 50s, that sort of style. Because I think the thing is, even though the film sort of falls into the category for marketing purposes of horror, you know, it, it's not a film that's really setting out to, you know, to scare you. And, you know, it doesn't have any jump scares. You know, it doesn't have a truly supernatural aspect to it, even though, you know, there is one element, as you know, uh, there is one element on, on it in the film that is... The sort of monster aspect of it, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that that kind of that sort of lighting style of of using that you know that kind of like neon and very strong primary colours was certainly um, yeah intentional. And say in the in the confessional, you know, being a Catholic myself, I've you know I've well, an ex-Catholic or lapsed that I would say you know a real confessional is dark. You know, um, the at least when I started going to confession as a kid, a real confessional is dark. So the situation here became, okay, we want to have this, you know, interplay between the priest and the penitents who are confessing. I don't want to go for the realism of having the whole thing dark because we're not going to see anybody. So then it was like coming up with this idea that, okay, the most important colors here is, is sort of like a, sort of like a, like a purpley blue and, and a, which is to me like a, a color of, Sort of like a it's not it's a non-binary kind of color purple which I which is why I like it because it's kind of like it's like a non-binary color so that's like him it's on him and then on the penitent they've got the kind of like the more goldy color so it kind of made sense then to kind of have a stylized kind of confessional that's also in a way sort of showing the sort of the sort of interplay thematically that's going on and finding some colors that actually represent that so. Um, you know, because otherwise, to me, it just would have been really kind of just dull, just having it, it, it all dark and then having just a tiny little bit of light coming from somewhere. So, yeah, I really like, I, I mean, I, I like those crime thrillers you're talking about, the, um, yeah, as you say, the kind of, the, the noir colour stuff like, you know, what is it, that, um, The Last last Seduction too, you know, those kind of films, you know, I like I like those a lot. Yeah, it's and it's it's really cool hearing a, a director um, instead of talking about the themes of their you know horror film and and things like that, going straight to aesthetic and just you know explaining it as if it were a painting and a palette. It's it's really nice um, because that's not a conversation that's had in Australia um, uh, right. often. And, and I think in in the um, as you said the government funded sphere, most of the films. Attending to sort of look the same, and uh, yeah, they're they're you, you they they also look a little bit like advertising too, and uh, I, I think uh, uh, just just um uh here's here's a here's a question. I mean, you said you've you've just made four films in America in five years. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, that's fuck that's fucking insane. And it usually you know the the, the classical Australian thing is you make one feature every fucking seven years, and it doesn't matter if you're Yahoo serious. 
or um, you know the director of Ghosts of the Civil Dead. Johnny Hillcoat. But you're going to have to wait seven years to to, uh, to make another movie. <laughs> it, it's it's very very common. And and there you are making these these genre films. How are you able to do that? Is that because that they are successful? They're they're, they're able to stand on their own feet financially. There's a market for them. What's what's going on? What's what's um, how are you able to continue to work? This is a, a foreign concept. You know, one of the reasons why I, you know, one of the reasons why I, I, I left Australia and came here to live full time in 2006 or seven, yeah, around then, was that I was making films fairly regularly in Australia, but very low budget and just getting just getting small amounts of financing. But I just got to a point where I just felt like I was hitting my head against a wall because no matter what I was doing, I wasn't getting anywhere in terms of being able to bump up. And also, I was almost like treated like, even though I was making lower budget genre films, I was actually treated more like I was making porno movies. I remember actually at one point meeting someone who had a connection with Film Victoria, and they were saying to me something about, oh yeah, I'm, someone at Film Victoria knows your films. I said, oh really, who's that? And then they mentioned the name, I didn't really know them. And they said, yeah, they said that you make porn films. And I said, so people think I make porn films. I've never actually made porn films. And I'm not saying that... There aren't good porn films anyway, but the thing is, I've never made porn films, so my so my image is I make porn movies. So I I I'm just thinking, not only can I not get any money from any film place, I might I I might as well be making porn films. So I thought, fuck this, I'm I'm leaving, can't stand this, driving me insane. So that's why I came over here. I've been able to make the films through a combination, really, of the fact that you know I have good skills for raising money. Um, but also, I, I also usually most of the time, um, you know, on some of these films, I put some of my own money into it as well, and I'm certainly not a wealthy guy, but, um, but I put my own money into some of these as well. Um, they get distribution. Um, I mean, there's so many distribution channels now that you don't necessarily have to, you know, people get obsessed with like theatrical releases. Um, most of the time, if you're doing a theatrical on a really low budget movie, you actually end up losing money because it's so expensive to put it into theaters and you get screwed and you get ripped off. Most of the films I do, you know, I'm able to find the markets for it and I'm able to kind of like at least get it into a situation where digitally or at least Blu-ray or DVD, it's actually making, um, you know, making some money. And then from that, I then, in a way, then parlay that into the next one. Um, you know, I mean, I've done, you know, a reasonable amount of movies now, about 12, I think, um, something like that over the last, you know. I mean, I actually, I'm disappointed. I mean, really, I mean, I wish I'd made a lot more. I mean, I feel like I'm useless really because I, I look at directors like you know Kanido Shindo in Japan he died at 97 and he'd made something like 68 movies you know? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I wish I'd been in that period where although he of course you know he worked for a lot of studios and you're almost like you always like doing one a month you know in some ways I'd like that but, but but on the other hand I don't think I'd be able to work for a studio except maybe like Japan's Nakatsu I probably couldn't work for a studio who would be wanting to do the kind of stuff I want to do because I don't want to just do the normal shit. And, and even on Purgatory Road, I had people saying to me, a couple of distributors would say to me, well, if you actually could add maybe a supernatural element to this, um, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be able to do this, this, and this with it. And it's like, are you fucking kidding? What do you mean add it? Like, you mean go right back in, recut the movie, reshoot the movie just for you and put a ghost in it? You know, so... Um, you know, to me, it's still making the films I want to make, you know, and as a result, the price I pay is that I have a very, you know, have a very up and down kind of life, you know, my, you know, my personal relationships are kind of most of the time just completely shredded by the, um, you know, by the, 
you know, the uh, up and down nature of my lifestyle. But this is what I want to do. This is this is what I've always wanted to do. And I figured, you know, there's always a price for everything, and this is a price that I pay. And you know, I continue to make movies. And I'm not saying I wouldn't come back and make movies in Australia. I mean, I certainly would. But I also think a lot of filmmakers, the ones who make a film, as you just mentioned, every five years or every seven years, I think it's also because a lot of them, they get too used to making big budget movies and they no longer will want to do something that's like lower, you know, and I've kind of done both. I've done films that are, you know, that are a little bit, I want to say bigger. I mean, I've definitely never done anything above about a million and a half or something. But the thing is, some of these people, you know, they're used to doing $10 million movies, and when they say they can't get, they can't make movies anymore, well, what they're really saying is, no, no one will give them the $10 million they're used to getting to make a movie, whereas they could go back and make a million-dollar film or a half-a-million-dollar film. You know, there would definitely be companies that would give them money for that, but they don't want to do it. Firstly, can I just say, uh, in, in regards to, you know, their lifestyle and, and, uh, uh, and uh, personal life sacrifice, I hear you, brother, that is... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, for for those listeners of the podcast that know me, uh, they'll know that 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 is true. I actually want to ask you about that. In Australia, do you think that the filmmaking artists are just not prepared to suffer? Is that something that you've? Because uh, for me, the artistic myth uh, always involves some suffering, whether you're Francis Ford Coppola or 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 whoever. It, it, it that's kind of part of it, some kind of sacrifice. Do you think that that's been bred out of Australian filmmakers? Because in many ways, uh, Australia is an easy place to make a movie. Um, uh, if you forget the, the, the sort of the funding part, um, it's, a, it's a very stable place to live. Uh, you know, there yeah. is some government, um, you know, safety net in terms of, you know, the dole and healthcare. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, in many ways... It, it, it's an easy place to to, uh, to to make a film. I mean, Adelaide is a great city where you, you could you could be in the country in you know twenty you know fifteen minutes yes. uh, from the CBD. Like it's it's very practical, and yet we're just not producing the work. So surely there's a a cultural problem. And I think in some ways it comes down to um, the 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 artists not prepared to suffer as all great artists have. I think you're right that. They, I think what happens, the attitude I think is you should only suffer at the beginning before you make your first movie and then once you've made it, you should then be on a sort of like an easy street. And I think what happens is that they make one movie that, say, for example, gets government funded. So that means, you know, you have these situations where you have people making, say, like $200,000 shorts and you look at the credit list, there's like 200 people working on this thing. So they think that's how, so they then think that's how a film gets made. So then when they're trying to get a feature up, they have it in their mind, well, this has got to be like a $4 million feature because in a way it's almost got to be ratio-wise similar to the short that I just did. To me, that's not a real filmmaker. That's sort of like someone who's just really finding a way to sort of like sort of like game, sort of like game, game the system, but it's not really about making movies. It's just about making getting fees. And so I think it gets to a point where you're right, in Australia, let me see, I, I find that in Australia the 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 easier part in Australia, as you say, people don't have health costs because you have, um, you know, you have government health care. Um, you, you can also get, to some extent, you get the dole, and then if you've been on the dole for a while, you know, you've got to do a few extra things here and there, go to a couple of classes, turn up, sign a few books. But it's something that um, you cannot do somewhere like in the, in the US. So to me, I would think that you'd think that there'd be hundreds or thousands of young filmmakers making features in Australia because they've got that safety net, but it almost seems kind of like the opposite. 
and that's and that's that used to annoy me even when I was making features back there because I was one of the few people who was making non-government funded features and people would say, oh God, you're lucky. And I'd be like, lucky? Um, I'm finding investors. I'm Out of every probably 50 meetings I have, um, I find one investor. So the thing is, to me, it's always been, I always knew that my life was always going to be tough from, from birth to death if I'm making movies. There's not going to be any point when I go, oh, well, now I'm on easy street because I also, I don't make huge big blockbuster movies where I'm getting million dollar fees. I'm basically making films where half the time I'm getting almost nothing to make the movie and then I get a little bit of the money that comes back um, with the investors or I work out some way to do it. I mean, I, I don't do anything else. I mean, for the last 10 years, I've only made movies. Like, that's been my entire living. But but it's a, but it's a, it, but it's, it's still a very up and down thing and, and, you know, you tend to live, you live frugally and, you know, and you, you can't be in the business of having to please everyone else in your life, including your um, girlfriend, wife or whatever, because if you're totally making movies, it's a little bit like um, a movie I just saw called Free Solo about a guy who solo climbs um, without, a, without a rope. And he said too, he said, there's no space when you're so committed to that. There's no space for two major things in your life when you're doing that kind of thing, when you're that committed, because you need that focus. And I, I definitely know that you need the focus, but it's not just the focus. You need to be able to accept, I've got to live like this to make the movies. And if you have someone else, usually they want to live in a much better, either better surroundings, or they want to go on a vacation, you know, 10 times a year or whatever, you know, and that's them. But, but the, although then at the same time, you know, you, if you're a, um, if you're going to be dating, marrying or whatever, a filmmaker, then you probably should first do a little research on what it's like to be the filmmaker rather than thinking you can change the filmmaker and get them to stop making movies because that's not going to happen. From the producer of The Wog Boy, Paul Morris is a typical family guy with a not-so-typical job. I don't like people who rape women. He's a hitman with principles and a problem. Sensitive new age. Killer, a new action comedy. If you could go back to uh, your early work uh, in with Marauders, which I believe is the first feature film shot on video in Australia, if you could yes, uh, yeah, go, uh, go back to that, uh, how you were able to uh, get that made, what that led to, you made a film called Snack. Yeah, Snack was um, sensitive, sensitive new age killer. I remember when that came out. I think just when I I, I was like a like a still I think a teenager, um, I was getting into Hong Kong action, and I could see what you were doing. Uh, and I think they maybe even mentioned it on the on the movie show. Could you uh, uh, tell me how you got your start making features in Australia, and and how that led to the point where you are now? So, at when I was when I was. Um when I was 23, I was working for a video company in Melbourne called South Pacific Video that was owned by a guy called Riley Bishop. He was one of the video pioneers in Melbourne, the first guy to have video stores. But he also had a production company. So I got a job there based on my Super 8 movies that I'd been making for the last um, you know, nine years. I got a job there as a, a night dubber. I was dubbing VHS tapes, porno tapes, from 11 o'clock at night to 8 in the morning. That's probably where that rumor started that you make pornos. <laughs> yeah, I used to dub them. Yeah, so I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, they needed a night dub, and this was a production company. But they said, "Look, we like your work." Because I showed them some, some old super eights I had. But they said, at the moment, we don't have any jobs for cameramen and sound recorders because they're already filled. So they, and they said, "We do have a night dub, a night dubbing job, 
um, if you want to do that, it's like 11 o'clock at night to 8 in the morning. You'd be dubbing every night. And the reason they did all that stuff at night was for Palace, a company called Palace um, X Video and a number of other like X-rated companies at the time in Australia. In a very short, small window, there was triple um, X movies that were permitted. So anyway, they said, do you want the job? So I said, yeah, okay. So I was dubbing films during the night. And then in the day, of course, I usually I'd, you know, go home and sleep. But um, I still wanted to do production, of course. So anyway, eventually I, I weaseled my way into saying, you know, they'd have a shoot on one day. And even though I'd just done the night shift, I'd say, hey, can I come out on the shoot if you need someone extra? And they'd say, well, you're not going to get paid for it. And I'm like, I don't care. So anyway, I went out. I started helping around. And eventually, six months later, they say, look, um, we've got a job as a sound recordist here. Um, do, do you want to just do that? Yep, I'll do that. So anyway, I did that. And I'm still making my own Super 8s at the same time on the weekends. Anyway, eventually I get to a point where um, they, one day the cameraman couldn't make it and I go, I'll do it, I'll do it. So anyway, essentially I shot stuff for them. They really liked it. They fired the cameraman. I became the cameraman. Then I started shooting stuff for other directors there and eventually they saved money when I said, look, I can direct and shoot. So I, I started to becoming, I, so I started directing and shooting commercials and corporate videos for, um, you know, every day for about three years. Then... Um, I, I had then been writing this script called Marauders, and I, there was another guy there named Paul Harrington, and both of us were working there, and I said, I've got an idea, let's make this movie, Marauders, and he goes, what, with what? What are we going to make it with? I said, well, we're shooting on these cameras here, you know, the camera I was using was a $200,000 Ikigami camera, um, and I said, why don't we go and speak to the guys? Anyway, I went and spoke to the owner, and this is what I said to him, I said, look, Peter, Nobody's using all this equipment on the weekends. And I'm wondering, would you be cool if we went out and shot a film on the weekends? And um, if the film does well, um, if the film does well, uh, you know, we'll give you half the money. And if it doesn't do well, you know, no skin off our teeth. And then we're able to, um, at least there's a feature there. So he was kind of like at first, oh, I don't know. And anyway, I kept pestering him and eventually said, okay. So we then got bunch of people together, my brother um, and this other younger friend I had who just started seeing a few of my movies, and I guess I was a bit of a mentor to him, um, his name, you'd know his name, uh, Richard Walsencroft. So so Richard, so Richard, my brother, Paul Harrington and myself, we all put a little bit of money into the movie just to buy, just to buy the stock, the tapes and stuff, and this guy who owned the company, he basically gave us a van, he let us have all the lighting and all the cameras and everything. And so for 42 weekends in a row, we shot Marauders. And we did nothing We did nothing else on those weekends. It's amazing to think now, because everyone now has just got other things going on. But the idea that we're able to get pretty much a commitment from everybody for every single weekend for 42 weeks. And so essentially, shot the movie. Had, you know, it, was, it was problematic, had all kinds of problems making it, even car accidents and stuff. One of the car accidents is actually in the movie. And... We uh, ended up there finishing the movie. We cut it there as well. We did the whole thing there, and then we got a, um, you know, it got a, it got a little bit of a release overseas. Didn't make, you know, heaps of money on it, but you know, got a little bit of a release. And from then, I pretty much then, you know, got in this kind of like groove to start making more movies. But it took a long time because because I'd made this shot on, you know, shot on video film. And I thought it looked pretty good actually. Like I didn't think it looked crappy. Um, shot a video film, which I on, on that one I shot it, I shot it and I shot it and directed it. So um, you know, so, so saved on bringing anyone else in. But I've, I've often DP'd the films I've shot, I've directed anyway. But certainly in the early days, um, I did that. But 
you know, Paul and, and Richard and Colin kind of produced it. Also, Richard was in the film. My brother was in it too. And Paul and Paul is a, um, you know, he went on to do, you know, work at Channel 7. He also did a, a movie or a documentary called The Secret. Still in touch with him. He's a good guy. He lives in Melbourne. But anyway, I had a hard time after Marauders actually getting um, work in Melbourne. Well, well, getting features because, what, number one, David Stratton in Variety completely slammed it. It was, it was kind of funny in a way. He just... It was funny because I I dared to do something that no one else in the industry was doing, which was making like, at that time, like an exploitation, very pretty, very mean-spirited kind of exploitation movie. And then David Stratton just completely crucified the movie, you know, like almost to the point of saying this kind of film should never be made in Australia. These people should really reflect on where their careers can go from there. He actually said that. And, and, <laughs> and, um, and so it was, it was in a way a little bit of a taste of what was to come because I've always kind of felt very much, you know, like an outsider, you know, very kind of marginalized because the kind of films I was kind of making, they weren't like straight exploitation, like say like the Brian Trenchard Smith stuff. It's almost kind of in between. I mean, and I don't mean that in a sort of like tooting my own horn, sort of being an arthouse wanker kind of person, but I just mean it as in I've always kind of, because I, I like a lot of foreign arthouse kind of movies and there's a certain aesthetic I like in the movies and, and kind of blending them with the, um, you know, blending them with the kind of exploitation kind of stuff was kind of like something that I don't think really that many people, anyone else in Australia is really kind of doing it like that. And Stratton's reaction was, well, well, no one should be doing it. That was pretty much his reaction. I mean, of course, later on, you know, he saw Scent of New Age Killer and he actually said to me, you were that Marauders guy, weren't you? Because um, they did an interview with me. And I said, yeah, and you, cruci you crucified the movie. He just kind of smiled and he sort of said, oh, well, you know, you know well, now you're making this. Perhaps it was a, it was a worthwhile crucifixion. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I pretty much um, started making yeah, lower-budget films, again, just pretty much off my own bat with my own money. Um, one of the ones that I made was one called another one, which was just kind of like, was like, what the fuck are you doing? A film called The Masturbating Gunman. Um, I did that with a little bit of Jap Japanese money, uh, and it was, a, it was again another Australian film that just never gets listed in any Australian films. I mean, I'll often like read stuff where someone will say, hey, here's a rundown of all the Australian films made at this time, and yeah, there's almost never my films listed there, which is kind of funny. It's almost like, well, no, we're going to kind of pretend you don't exist. What sort of uh, size a uh, 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 production uh, was uh, the, uh, the Masturbating Gunman? I I, uh, is, is that, is that shot on video or? No, that, that was shot, um, no, that was shot on, um, yeah, that was shot on, 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 on beta SP and then we just kind of like put it through this kind of like process to take some of the kind of like highlights, highlights off it. Um, and, um, it was probably a crew of about, about 15 people, you know, and, um, shot over, sort of shot over about two months. Uh, not every day it was more over like, um, you know, Weekends and extended weekends now, because at the same time I was also still directing, occasionally directing commercials, but I was also working in factories as well, you know, to basically pay other bills. Um, I worked for a company for a while called Drake Industrial, where it was literally just temp work, you know, unloading trucks and stuff like that. So I never really got to that point of going, I'm just going to, you know, I, because I was never getting, you know, government grants and stuff, I could never just kind of go, oh, well, yeah, well, you know, I'm getting a grant to write the script, I'm getting a grant for this, I'm getting a grant to do that. I, I, I was never in that position. So whatever I was doing, I had to still keep, you know, keep supplementing whatever I was doing with film stuff, with other stuff as well, just in order to survive, in order to keep making movies. 
And so eventually did that. And then from masturbating gunman, that then led to um, sensitive, sensitive new age killer. And that was because, um, and that was because I'd met someone who I was doing corporate videos for, and she knew someone who was a potential investor. So um, I went to him, and uh, and because there was a much bigger budget, um, well, when I say much bigger budget, much bigger budget, relatively speaking, the whole budget it was under, it was under a million dollars all um, all up. But back at the time, to me, that was a huge amount of money, you know. So you know. Coming from very low budget, I was able to do a lot, you know, because that's why I kind of laugh these days when someone will complain about, oh, my God, we've only got like two million to make the movie and whatever. And I'm just thinking, you know, you're, you are living a life of delusion because also these days it's very hard to make that kind of money back, especially if you don't have big names in the movie. You know, it's, it's really hard. So I went to this investor, convinced him to invest in Sense of New Age Killer, got picked up. We did a theatrical in Australia. And they got picked up by Fox for 20th, 20th Century Fox for video, television, and all that in Australia, some overseas countries, and um, and then I kind of figured, well, I'm kind of like on my way in Australia now, but I, it wasn't true at all because the film got well reviewed. It got a really good review in the Herald Sun. It got a good review in the Age, and actually, nearly all the all the papers and magazines got it well reviewed. But, you know, it didn't lead to anything. And that was the main lesson I learned in Australia, um, as opposed to, say, here, where it's a little bit different. In Australia, unless you have something that's literally through the roof, I mean, literally $10, $20, $30 million. But if you just make a decent film and it makes some money or whatever, um, there's no one gives a shit because there's no industry. You know, there's no industry to kind of pick it up and, and, and move because I'd even go to people and say, look, I just made this movie. I've got this other script. And most of the time, people wouldn't even get back to me. And so... It's not even as if they'd even acknowledge, you know, I watched your movie, I liked it or didn't like it. No, they just wouldn't even return calls. So I'm starting to get to this point now where I'm thinking, should I stay here or am I just wasting my life staying here? And so in the meantime, I convinced an American producer to finance two erotic thrillers as well, um, which I also shot in Australia, a film called Fishnet, another film called Trail of Passion. And, um, and then a third one, which is Defenseless, which was... Um, which then ended up coming out, coming out over here. I mean, so did the other ones as well. But it was after Defenseless in 2004, which got screened, um, or pretty much screened at the Melbourne Underground Film Festival. You know, it kind of won Best Film, Best Actress, Best Cinematography and all that. So, you know, got a little bit of thing in that. I mean, Richard's always been a good supporter of the kind of films that I do. I appreciate that. You know, he's, he's po- politically, I'm not, you know, we're not necessarily on the same, always on the same um, page, but, you know, so what, you know. I'm kind of like in between anyway, you know. I think everyone, I think they're all a bunch of, bunch of dirty, dirty liars. So, so I, I would say that, yeah. After Defenseless, that that was when I decided this was 2004, five, because um, I'd gotten some interest from the US, and I also had a company that wanted to put out a box set of my films, and that to me was like Jesus Christ, you know. Like in Australia, I can virtually get, I can't get anything. And I've got a company here is because I got a call from a guy because I just helped do a, um, I just helped a local, I, I just helped a company in the US do a do some interviews for um, one of my favourite ever Australian TV series, which was um, Blue Murder, and I'd help them in Australia um, get some interviews with um, some of the key people like Michael, um, you know Michael Jenkins and um, you know few people involved with the movie. Anyway, that's when this guy said to me, because they were a video distributor, from, they're called Subversive, and he said to me, because I hadn't even told him I'd made, made movies, and he said to me, I noticed that you've, you yourself made a lot of movies. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've made some. He said, who's put them out in the US? 
or in Australia. I said, well, actually, they haven't really been well distributed anywhere. And he said, send them to me. So I sent him um, four of my movies and he got back to me like within a week. And he said, um, we want to put out these movies like a box set. We want to do a full on box set with with interviews and extras and all kinds of stuff. So that was when I decided, well, you know what? I think at the same time that the box set comes out, I'm going to move. I'm going to move here. So that was that. So that was the point because I figured that, you know, I'm just kind of I'm just kind of slamming my head against the wall in Australia, even though I think Australia is a really good place to shoot. I think that you know it's, it's great to shoot. I mean, I think any place is good to shoot because if you've got a story, you can tell it anywhere. You often hear people saying, "Oh, it's so boring here. There's nothing to do." And I said, "Well, no, but when you're making movies, like even like you're from Adelaide, right? Like Adelaide's got amazing like access to like you've got the coast, you've got the Flinders Ranges, you've got all these amazing areas." You know, so people often have this idea that you've got to live in some so-called exciting town or city in order to, you know, find a good place to shoot. But I'm, I, I'm, I'm quite the opposite because I, I don't really like shooting in cities as much as I like shooting on the coast or, or in, in the country areas anyway. So um, to me, but yeah, that's why I moved. That's pretty much why I moved here. I just got an email from a friend today uh, who has gone over to New York um, and he's making a short and he's, he's, he's already made several features uh, before. Um, but he, but he quickly realised it was just too expensive to, to to make a feature in New York. Yes, it's very expensive to make. Yeah, you know, like same with LA. Like even though I live outside LA, like about sixty miles outside LA, but um, shooting in LA it's a nightmare. I would not shoot anything in LA because um, also whenever you're shooting there, you get treated like you're a studio. So even even though you say to them, well look, we're just a low budget movie they still hit you with $3,000 to go and shoot a half day in like in someone's store or something like that. So um, that's why there's a lot of production has actually moved out of LA and the only stuff that's shooting here and New York is the big, you know, the big high end expensive television shows and, and movies where, where, whereas there's a lot more production going on in, well, actually Georgia is kind of like the new Hollywood over here. Like there's more, there's more going on in Georgia now than there is going on in LA. And, and it's a, for the same reason. It's just gotten it's just gotten too expensive, um, so that's why. Yeah, I I definitely love to make something else in Australia, but I I'd, but I'd probably end up getting the money from here, and then I'd go down to Australia and make it. Um. Well, on the first two features that I did while I was uh, when I came here, um, I shot those ones myself. So um, I was cinematographer and director on those ones. But then on the next one on Stress to Kill, um, my 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 very good friend who shot um who shot Sense of New Age Killer, um, David Richardson, uh, he came over and shot Stress to Kill. So that, and that was shot, that was shot in Florida, in, that was shot in Tampa, Florida. Um, and so with him, um, you know, because, you know, we had a good shorthand and uh, we'd worked together, you know, on, well, he also shot Masturbating Gunman, Tribal Passion, Fishnet, quite a lot of stuff um, with me. So um, we've been good friends. We also wrote scripts together. We both wrote Sense of New Age Killer. It's actually, it's actually the, real, the, the original name is Hitman's Hero, and it's actually coming out soon with the original cut, the original title, because we, we had that title kind of forced on us, but the original title was Hitman's Hero. But David and I wrote that as well. Then with Purgatory Road, um, the guy who was a focus puller on Stressed, who, um, I'd worked with him shooting TV pilots because uh, another way that I've made a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of pocket money in the last few years was shooting um, TV pilots. Um, actually, it's more like they call sizzle reels. That's kind of like a five to seven minute um, concept idea. I worked for a company that did that. So I'd worked with this guy, Drew, and he was a cinematographer and we just got talking and eventually I just said to him, look, I've got this film happening in Tampa, Stress to Kill. Do you want to come and focus pull on that one, even though I know you're a cinematographer? Cause, but I also knew he was an amazing focus puller. And then I said to him, look, 
you do this one and I and and I promise you that on the next one I'll get you to shoot it and that's how it worked so he was the one who shot he shot he then shot Purgatory Road um, um, down there um, I haven't I haven't brought other um, Australian actors for any of the films here it's mainly because it's it's very complicated because you really because you need they need to have um, immigration you know you need to get it's complicated the process unless you've already got like um, visas to be able to live and work here um, their films are not big enough to justify doing all the paperwork and doing all the expense of doing that. But, you know, certainly if the budget's got a lot bigger, um, I might do that type of thing. But I'd probably be more likely to more like get money and go back to Australia and then work and bring some people from here and work with Australian people I like as well. That would probably work out better because it's just more, it's a little bit more complicated here um, from an administrative point of view, which is kind of like the part of the filmmaking I really can't stand. Because I'm producing and directing, I'd rather really just be, just rather just be directing and writing. But um, I've never I've never met a producer uh, who actually was able to do what they claimed they were going to do. Because usually, you know, people will say, "Oh yeah, I'd love to produce for you, help you produce the movies." What can I do? I say, "Well, why don't you go raise some money and why don't you do this?" And they can never do that because they think producing is just kind of like walking down the red carpet and kind of like hanging out on the set smoking a cigar. You know that. You know, it's no, it's it's hard work. I mean, I, um, uh, I mean, I know you're a filmmaker too. So, so yeah, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing glamorous about putting it all together. Nothing, nothing at all glamorous about that. But yeah, so I mean, that's pretty much a story up to now, and that's why the other, like, I mean, the main thing with crew is that it's 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 really hard crewing a movie because you never know, you know, where the where there may be sources of you know trouble and. There's always going to be someone in the crew, unless you're really careful. There's always someone who's going to make it difficult. There's always it only takes one or two people, you know, to disrupt the kind of like order and harmony of a crew. And especially on the last film I just did on Purgatory Road, it's, it had we there was quite a big crew on that one. Um, it was about I don't know. At times it was probably like forty people. Other times maybe fifteen or so. But you know, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of responsibility. I had a good line producer. Um, this um, woman I work with, Christina Smyrnas. She does a really good job, but she's line producing. She, she sort of comes on, does the movie, and then when she's done, she's done. Then I end up supervising the post and doing all that. But I do most of the post in Australia too, like um, the actual 4K conform, all the CG and all the um, colour grading was all done in Australia. I do it with a guy in Melbourne who does a really amazing job. Um, and cutting, I sometimes work with a guy in Melbourne and other times I work with this guy, this guy here in Burbank. Um, on cutting the movies and the earlier ones I cut them myself as well so you know I just keep I just keep doing it you know you keep keep sort of like slogging away because I you know I do I do love it I just but I, I certainly don't have a passion for the business side but unfortunately the business side is just a um, you know it's 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 a necessary evil that if, if, if I don't do that then I don't get to make movies you know bless me father for I have sinned repentance to 12 Hail Marys six our fathers so what's going on in there my brother's a priest. He's in there hearing confessions right now. I'm looking for some fellas that used to live here. You might have known the second fellow as Father Vincent. And these heathens, these godless vultures take from us. Now they must pay for their sins with their blood and the blood of their children. She was an addict and a thief. Well, she's my baby girl. I have my own church now, my own rules. Is there any way I can be part of your crusade? 
Nobody's good child. It is something we try on like a coat that never fits. This year, Purgatory Road is the uh, opening night film for the Melbourne Underground Film Festival. Uh, it's it's one of the craziest years for the Melbourne Underground Film Festival because the you know the the director was almost uh, pushed from his job. That's Richard Wollstonecraft, and yeah. uh, you know people have sort of deplatformed uh, this incarnation of the festival, um, harassing venues, um, you know, f- forcing them to right. you know, d- drop the festival, and and all, all this kind of um, sort of. Uh, Exciting uh, stuff uh, g- g- going on. Well, what, did, what is your feelings about, about the Melbourne Underground Film Festival or MUFF, uh, both historically, but very much now, like in this in this particular year, as uh, I don't know, the world has gone a bit crazy. Well, I think I think this year is would probably be a, I believe it's nineteenth year, and I know that um, I know that Richard um eventually originally started it because uh i think he had trouble getting his one of his films into the melbourne film festival and so he created in a way like um another you know another outlet for films that didn't get into the more kind of you know what you would say the more sort of acceptable you know legit festivals um so that other films would actually have a you know have a platform and i think it's been I think it's been a, a been. I mean, despite the, the despite the politics of um, of Richard himself, um, and despite like his own, you know, admittedly, you know, he, he's 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 a provocateur. Um, um, you know, he likes to he likes to provoke. He likes to you know disrupt and kind of upset people. But you know, taking take that away, I think it has been a good a really good launching pad for a lot of filmmakers. Um, because it really is impossible to often get films into the Melbourne Film Festival because even the, even the way you do get films in there, it's often very political. It's also based on certain themes of that particular year. And also the thing is now, you know, you, you have a certain bias for one particular group of people or and a bias away from another group of people, which is, which is really, you know, which is just how things have kind of turned out. And I think... I've only, I guess, kind of read a little bit about because I know last year that he he made some comment about um, he just made some statement that upset people. Um, so I only kind of like know pretty much from you know occasionally being told about well he said this or said that or he'll even tell me oh everyone's kind of upset with me at the moment. But as I said, I mean I I'm not you know I'm I don't share his. I don't share his his political views. Um, uh, he's very pro-Trump. I'm not pro-Trump, but at the same time, I'm not pro anyone, and um, so so that part of it is like that's his business. But so to me, it's like it's still there's him, but there's also the festival that he started. But I think it's actually has performed a really good, a really good service for filmmakers, and I think hopefully people can just kind of in a way take the politics out and just and just try to focus on the fact that you know they're going somewhere where they can sit down and watch a film that you maybe may not be able to see in any other place in Australia. Even it may not even get a video release or it may it may not get any kind of decent digital release and certainly not a theatrical release. I think just the fact that he creates he's created a venue for the screening of films where they can be screened publicly and seen, I think that I think that in itself is 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 really great. Yeah, I I'm I'm interested as to why there isn't much activity like this outside of figures like that. I, I, I wonder, yeah. what I, and I wonder, do you think it maybe takes an extremist like Richard to be doing something outside the system? Because most people just submit to the system. 
I mean, we complain about the system, yes. but we don't really start a new festival. We rarely go out and make a, a feature film on a, a zero budget independently. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I agree, Michael. Well, because, I mean, I also find, too, that, you know, that people who, you know, who are, who do have that sort of aspect of them, of, of that sort of cultural, cultural rebellion and that real that anti-authoritarianism, that's certainly me as well. I just meet so few people like that even now that I, I, I almost feel like that I've almost gone the other direction than other people I know who are getting older, that I, I still kind of like, you know, like my taste in films, it's almost gotten just more extreme, whereas often you see people, as they get older, they, they start becoming like um, a little bit more conservative and like, oh no, that's a bit much. And whereas I think because I see so little of that now that... It, it almost fuels my own passion for it even more because I think never has there been a, a better time to, you know, oppose the mainstream and, you know, oppose the status quo because the status quo, is, you know, kind of represents bland shit. Uh, when you are talking about the status quo, are you talking about Australia? Are you talking about Australian filmmaking and the film culture here? I'm certainly, talk, I'm certainly talking about this, this desire to want to make films to please the mainstream. That's what I'm really saying. Wanting, wanting to make films, and it's so important that, you know, the Melbourne Film Festival accepts me or Film Victoria will, will finance one of my movies if they like this. It's, it's because it's not about expression. It seems to be more about getting jobs. It's more about just kowtowing to, kowtowing to, yeah, very mainstream, mainstream thinking, becoming part of the grid, that to me is, and I, and I think that's certainly prevalent in the US as well. I think it's actually less prevalent in Europe because I look at some of the best films that I've seen in the last, say, few years, and a lot of them are either Scandinavian or French or whatever. I, I, I don't think this kind of like, this edging towards stuff that's really kind of like bland and just kind of, you know, almost deliberately constructed as a money-making machine, I, I, I think that it, it's kind of killing it. It's killing the culture because... It takes the unique point of view out of the work, because it, it just becomes about like oh yeah I made this film and uh, hopefully Khan or Sundance will like it and then I'll get this and then I'll get an agent. I mean there's nothing I hate more than when I hear this expression oh it's a good resume movie, as if like the or a good calling card this movie oh yeah it's a, this is a great calling card movie that is like what so the only reason you make a movie is so that you've got like something to show to get something else. I mean, what happened to just going, I'm making a movie and I'm expressing this, and, but I think it's because a lot of the time, a lot of filmmakers don't really have actually anything to say, so all they're really doing is making something that may get them a job, so they'll copy something that was successful, do a slightly different little twist on that, but they don't, it's not coming from a place of anger or fury. I think the best art definitely comes from you know, struggle and anger and fury and being pissed off at things. I don't think good art just comes from living comfortably. I mean, I don't think anything really good has ever come from people who live really, really comfortably. I mean, I have a friend um, in, from Switzerland. She's, you know, she's a great friend. But even she says, you don't see much good art coming from Switzerland. That's because Switzerland's a, probably the best country in the world to live in. No one's struggling. Everyone's got a job. Everyone's got health care and all that. So, of course, you're not having that. Indie American movies tend to me have a little bit more of that sort of spirit because, again, because the indie filmmakers are struggling to survive. Whereas, you know, I find in, yeah, in Australia, like, 
I guess I look at some of the films, which I mean, I don't see quite as many Australian films now as I as I used to. But I just don't get as excited about Australian films as I used to. At one point, you know, I think they were, there was a time when when they were a lot more kind of unique. Even back in the times of Channing Jim, Channing Jimmy Blacksmith, um, Devil's Playground, um, you know, the, um, Pure Shit, you know, some of, some of that stuff was kind of like it was at least being made by people with something to say rather than people who just want to make movies. And hopefully, their next movie will give them ability to make more movies. But there's not really anything being said. You know, you're not going to watch it and get a point of view. Do you have any opinion on uh, Australian film schools? I, I, I'm guessing you didn't go to film school. No. And I just wondered if you had any sort of general opinions about them as you would meet many people that come out of them and you would be able to observe what they do or don't do. Uh, and, I, I, yeah, I've just wondered if a lot of um, what we're talking about is, is, is very much institutionalised. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I would say the, to me, I guess, first, the positive, I think the positive aspect of a, of a film school is that you've got access to equipment and you get to meet um, people of your age who at some point will also be making films, you know, in the years ahead. So you do develop a network of people. I'd say that's a positive side. But aside from that, I would say that, you know, half the time the people who are, the, say, for example, like the main lecturers in a lot of film schools have not actually worked in the real industry for a long time. And you also you also have people, I think, they get a little bit kind of mollycoddled. I mean, that certainly happens here at film schools where you have someone who's just come out of UCLA and they've got a short. And they sort of expect that someone's basically going to um, just give them a $30 million feature because their professor at film school told them that their film was so amazing. Well, of course they're going to tell you that because you're, you're paying $40,000 a year to go to the film school. You know, so I think it does create, I think the main thing that's lacking in film schools is, is, is a realistic picture of what the business is really like. Like I often think to myself, I, at some point I might even come back to Australia and do like a weekend sort of like workshop, but basically doing the whole thing about financing and production and distribution and exhibition, the realities of those things, because this is the stuff that doesn't really get taught that much at film school because not that many people have been through the entire process i mean i've worked in distribution as well i've worked for i worked for david lynch's company doing the exhibition on inland empire i worked for orion pictures in the early 80s i worked for village roadshow also in melbourne so i have a sort of like a fairly rounded you know i have kind of like a fairly rounded view of it which i think has helped me in the long run because it simply means that i can sort of go into a meeting with investors and kind of like talk about the entire process rather than just going in and saying oh my God, I'm going to make an amazing movie, which of course is always the wrong thing to do because investors don't want to hear about how amazing it's going to be. They want to hear that their money is going to be well spent and that it's something that's commercial. You know, so, so, it's, I, so I think film school, that's what it lacks. I think it kind of like lacks that perspective on the entire process because it's not really just about making movies. It's about getting them out and getting them seen and getting them financed. And you shouldn't just rely on government bodies because that's going to end up really compromising the, the, the scripts and the subjects you want to do because there'll be certain subjects which the government body will not want to be involved with. Basically, film schools are not creating independent filmmakers. It's creating filmmakers to go into a system for which there's only a handful of you know, directing opportunities. Oh, yeah, because there's so few. Like When you think about it, that yeah, every year you've probably got, even in Australia, there's probably, what, it could be 500 to 1,000 people coming out of film school and I think most of them either go into um, maybe something more like, say, perhaps corporate video 
or or they just don't go into it at all. Like my brother, he works at a film school. Um, he's he's in charge of the technical side of it at um, Deakin in Burwood. But even yeah, even he said, you know, you know, half the students when they leave, yeah, a lot of them don't even ever go into actually making films or anything because well, because they they quickly see that that just because you've been to film school, it's not like going to medical school where you then can you know you can then work at a hospital. Essentially, when you've been to film school, no one gives a shit because most films you've got to raise the money yourself, or you've got to go to a film, or you've got to go to a film organisation like a Film Victoria or a Screen Australia. But no one is standing there going, great, got your degree, fantastic, here's your film. Um, they're sort of under this, and I think that's, that's where everything kind of falls down. And that, that's why I think the needs in a way, if you, if you want to keep the film schools legitimate, they need to, they need to be angling towards tr- showing filmmakers another path that's just that traditional path, say in Australia, of you know, applying for funding and getting this for the first draft and the second draft, that that you've got to take a more guerrilla approach. I mean, there's a filmmaker in Australia, in Melbourne, who I know. I mean, I'm in contact with her quite a bit. You know, she's one of the few people, I think, who's kind of like doing it right. She keeps making low-budget movies and keeps doing it on her own. Her name's Sarah Lamberg. And, you know, she's at least someone I can look at and think she's almost doing what I was doing at that age, you know, that are just pretty much going, well, whatever I do, I'm going to get these films made. Whereas when I was in Australia... Um, I'd bump into film people and I was never really, you know, part of any clique or um, any club there. But, you know, people would always say, I'd say, oh, how's your films going? Oh, you know, we're waiting on financing, we're waiting on the funding from Film Victoria or whatever. But some of these times they're waiting for two or three years and they're not, and they're not making any films in that period at all. It's like they won't leave the house with a camera unless they've got funding. Whereas my attitude was always, shit, if I've got a camera, then I can do something at least. And these days... It's so much cheaper to make a movie than it was back when I started um, making films. You know, I mean, these days it's like it's like a luxury. You know, what I mean, you get a, you can get a four K camera. You know, camera shooting nice four K. You know, add a lens and all that, but you can get like the full kind of kit. You know, three three to five grand. You've got a great lens. You've got a great camera. And you're doing full on. You know, four um, K raw. I mean, to be able to do that, to be able to do that now is incredible. So that's why I go. Oh, what the hell's stopping you? And I also feel the same way when I hear about stuff like. Oh well, there's a lot of prejudice against women getting into this and women get. And I go, hang on, who's stopping you from getting a camera and going out and making your own movie? That's got nothing to do with sexism. Nobody is stopping anyone from buying a camera, getting your friends together, get, going to a theatre group, getting some actors and making it. To me, it's not even a gender issue that's stopping anyone from making movies. You are stopping yourself from making movies if you are blaming that on why you're not making movies. What's your advice to people that they just want to go out and make movies? What What are the basic principles to follow when you have no money to to go and make a good feature film? I would say, I mean, certainly first and foremost, and this is nothing um, mind blowing. Yeah, certainly um, spend time first. You know, writing your script because to write the script doesn't cost anything. But you know, so spend time doing it. Don't have this idea that you're going to rush into the production and you're rushing the script because you've already set a shoot date. Don't do anything like that. You know, I would say, especially for your first film, and I would, I mean, also, obviously, probably you're talking more about a feature than a short, because um, I never really made many shorts except for the Super 8s I made, but, um, but yeah, for a feature, I'd say, yeah, certainly work on the script first, because that doesn't cost you anything, so you've got the luxury of time to do that right. Once you get, once you get that, obviously, you need to do a script that if you've got no money, then you need to have something that's in a way... It's got to be set somewhere or at least set in a milieu that you don't have to spend a whole lot of money either, you know, either lighting it or getting or getting location fees. 
So sometimes it is good to find, obviously, you know, have a storyline, maybe investigate where you might shoot it first, then write the script if you know you can get the location or you know you can use particular locations because at least that cuts out location fees, cuts out a lot of lighting. If you've got a lot of interior lighting, then it's going to cost you money. Then do more stuff outside or use mirrors if you're inside um, or, or use natural light. So again, you wouldn't have a lot of night scenes. Just got to kind of be really kind of like smart about the way you actually construct it. But first, have a script, but have a script that can be made on a low budget. Don't stretch something thinking, well, I know this is kind of like a low budget version of Die Hard, but we're going to do our best. Like, I, I, I would not do that. I would do almost like the opposite. I would go, find something that the low budget theme and look and vibe really works for the subject matter. You know, get something where... Where if it was shot on if it was shot in a high end way it would almost kill the subject matter. I mean you look at a film, a American horror film like Basket Case, low budget film set in a sleazy Times Square area, um, on shot on it was shot on super, on sixteen blown up blown up thirty five and all that. But the actual very low grade shooting style really worked for it. Okay, aside from that, get good actors because. Good actors don't cost you anything if you know where to look for good actors. So you've got to have skills to be able to cast. And the first place I would go would not be to people who've done TV. I'd go to theatre groups, um, like amateur theatre groups, people who get together every weekend and do plays on their own and all that because you find really good actors in theatre groups. Um, and then essentially, you know, cast the people, get the right people. Don't worry about obviously names because you've got no money. You're not going to put a name in it. But obviously... You have a subject that that is your selling point. The subject is a selling point, and 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 the acting is just always got to be good. You, there's no excuse for casting a bad actor. There really isn't because you've got time, and there are a lot of good actors there who are not even working a lot. And sometimes you can say to someone, "Look, we don't have much money. Just give you a bit of cash in hand, fifty bucks or whatever," and they'll go along with it. You know, like as long as because the thing is, it's important to remember that actors always want to stretch themselves. Actors always want to be in something that also basically informs people that they have range. So they're always looking for opportunities. And if your script is really good, you attract talent. If you've got a crappy script and your, your, your attitude is just, oh, well, here's the script. We just want to make a low-budget movie. No. You always think of how will the script attract good talent because that's how you start getting really good people when you've got no money. Because I go, yeah, look, you know, there's no money, but I really want to do it. Because remember, the actor is always thinking about their showreel. They're always thinking about other people seeing it and then considering them for another role. So once you've done the casting, then, yeah, make sure that, you know, again, make sure that the shoot's really well organised. Never, ever scrimp on sound. Get a proper sound recorder. Get someone who actually, and same with a DP, get someone who's either just come out of, um, they shoot either commercials, corporates, or they have shot short films or whatever. But again, don't scrimp on your cinematographer and don't scrimp on your sound person because, None of those areas are, for, are forgivable if you screw up, but there's also no excuse for, for poor sound and poor pictures on a low-budget film because if you've got the right people, they'll deliver that. You know, if you want to do it quickly, you really got to have locations, number one, that were all very close to each other. And so you're trying to be creative in the sense that, you know, if you, for example, you know, one location is a, is a petrol station, another one is some paddock somewhere, another one then is the beach, Yeah, then you need to go somewhere near the beach and basically find locations that find the other two locations nearby 
that so that you're not spending you've got to limit the amount of time you're spending driving and moving around that's that's the main thing because that's where you eat up so much time in low budget that if you go okay we're now going to drive like an hour across town or two hours to this other location it just you just got to be super organized and you've got to really have someone who almost gets off on organizing that kind of stuff like a line producer and there are some production managers like that they love that organizational aspect of it of being able to go okay well we're going to be there at nine and then we're here at 11 and we're there and then it's all going to work out you need that kind of person because minimizing locations is important but at the same time you know i i wouldn't do it to the point of going okay that you end up shooting in some location where there's no change in terms of visually you know but it's it's just fine it's been able to very shrewdly do your location scouts and 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 really spending time on on asking yourself how does this how does this work into the schedule? How does this help the actors as well? That's the other thing too, that you know, you also want something that's enabling the actors to be comfortable. You don't want to be just shoving them and pushing them and you know and kicking them here and there because you you want them, you sort of want them at the top of their game as well. So it's 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 sort of like juggling it's 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 juggling a lot of balls and when you're don't have the budget, you, you're even more, I think you're even more obligated to try to create, you know, very, um, you know, more at least comfortable working conditions for these people because they're not being paid. So I mean, you you tend to be a little bit more um, uh, people are a little bit more tolerant of discomfort when they're being paid. But when people are giving it their time, you know, I think it is important to at least acknowledge that look, they're giving their time. So then you just got to this means spending more time getting the locations right, um, doing doing the right casting. And I mean, and whether you cut the film when you and whether you cut the film when you're shooting it or when it's finished is up to you. I mean, some people like the idea of every day just doing a full cut every day, or even these days, you know, you'll have someone saying, "Oh, you know, we're going to cut it on the set." But I, I personally don't really like the idea of cutting right on the set because it takes me out of the shoot. You know, like I like to, in a way, shoot it, go away a little bit, think about it, then come back to it where I'm feeling fresh about it. Whereas there's a bit of an obsession now that everything has got to be done like, oh, you know. We've got to cut by the last day of the shoot. We want to have like a, a, an assembly. I'm not as obsessed with that. I mean, obviously, it's different if you're shooting something for like an ad or corporate and, a, and people have a major deadline. But the main thing with a film, just don't give yourself an impossible deadline unless you've got a distributor who's picking up the bill. You know, you've really got to give yourself time to let it breathe. So finish the shoot. I would say finish the shoot. Go away for a couple of weeks and don't touch it. Then come back and look at what you've got because otherwise you start making decisions that you're too close to it, and I think that's really important to be able to step to be able to step back. And also, I think the thing is too, because these days cameras are cheaper. I'm I'm definitely a I'm definitely a fan of shooting it on multiple cameras if you can, at least two cameras, because it's just getting stuff. Even especially in performances, you get great performance stuff if you can shoot both angles on a conversation at the same time, rather than having to you know switch camera and then do the other side. But also just. In action stuff, it's really good having that extra camera, like an extra wide shot, or you know, um, something or, or something with a, um, a more portable camera or a drone or whatever. I mean, drones certainly give it good production value. I mean, I use it sparingly. I think drones get a bit overused these days. So you're seeing films that look like okay, they clearly had a drone and they were obsessed with a drone. So every shot's got the drone. To me, that kind of takes that to me becomes like wallpaper. I feel that the drones uh, take me out of a picture um, and um, make me feel like I'm in a video game. 
because of that, the, the way the perspective moves, it doesn't move like a crane. It doesn't move like tracking. It doesn't move yes. like handheld. That, that, that it's not connected to anything. It's not connected to a person. And it feels like I'm in a video game. Uh, that, that, that it, yeah. it feels like it's taking a sort of video game aesthetic, which might work for some films, but for the most part doesn't. Uh, and I think that that will date very quickly, the, the, the overuse of drones, uh, certainly. Yeah, I agree. And I think that sometimes, I, I think sometimes that the drones don't get used often for what they could be used for, which is often sometimes just to be able to have like, you know, almost like a camera on a tripod at, th at 30 feet. You know, whereas people have this thing about when it's it's always got to be going up or coming down. That um, even in a couple of shots in Purgatory Road, I think it's only like three drone shots in the whole thing. There's one where a guy's getting chased. There's a drone. There's one, and there's a couple of others. But a couple of shots were were actually just static shots, and it was simply because they were at a height we just couldn't get to. But they but they they really just look like it's a locked off shot. But I think in a way, that's one of the best things you can do with a drone, um, and it doesn't get used with that kind of in that way much because people always feel the need to have it moving. But as you say, that then starts creating a video, more like a video game aesthetic. And if that's not what you're going for, it definitely does take you out of the. Uh, it definitely does take you out of the um, the story. You described yourself as a Catholic, and then you quickly corrected yourself. I'm going to take your. First answer, because I think uh, Catholicism is yeah. so thick and residual that you can you, yes. you, you can uh, completely disown it, but it's going to be a part of who you are. I just wondered how that um, influenced your filmmaking and if you were influenced by other Catholic filmmakers like Abel Ferrara, Martin Scorsese, um, etc., et, et uh, or Mel Gibson. Uh, there's certainly a taste for violence. Because I'm not a Catholic, uh, I'm an Anglican which is uh, something that, right. that can disappear in a generation very easily, unlike a, right. a, a Catholicism. I just wondered how that influenced your voice and what you think of other Catholic filmmakers. There is a line in the movie, you probably remember, which um, the priest actually does say to someone, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. You know, that sort of like, that sort of like summed up that. That sort of like summed up that. I guess what I meant by that um, myself was saying, yeah, I am a Catholic, but definitely not practicing. I don't go to church anymore. But... Yeah, I mean, I would say probably not so much influenced by um, Ferrara or Scorsese along those lines, even though Scorsese certainly to me was um, quite an influence. Saw Taxi Driver when I was 17, and that really changed my world in a sense because it was something so amazing. And that was at school, which they screened it at school. I wasn't even really aware of Scorsese at that time. And to see Taxi Driver back then, it was like, fuck, you know, yes, this is what you can do. But I think what Catholicism did for me more than anything is that it drew me towards the taboo in terms of the subject matter. Because when I was growing up, there used to be a Catholic newspaper called The Advocate. And I'm not still sure whether it's still published in Australia, but it was an Australian Catholic newspaper that was sold at churches. And they used to have a section at the back of the newspaper, which was all about films. And they would basically break them down into general, general films. And they'd have categories like um, for the family, um, for the family with reservations, for adults only. But then the fourth section in huge type says advised against. And under advised against, they would list all these movies, which were obviously all the R-rated and the sex movies and all that that were playing in Melbourne at, at the time. And it would have next to them, you know, um, things like, Perverted, it had like you know, the name of the film that it would say gross violence, perverted sex, 
inexcusable perversion, things like that. And I remember I I used to, because I used to collect the movie ads out of the um, newspapers too. So I had the ads for all these movies that I half the time could never see them because I was too young. But I started collecting movie ads. Um, every Thursday I'd go out to the paper, I'd clip them out. I've done that all my life. I still do it. So I've got like, um, since I was about eight years old, I've got like, um, you know, almost 50 years of, or 45 years of, um, you know, movie ads. And I would, and this really drew me to these films. So I started to research and look up books and, you know, what's this film that they said? Like they'd have like even like old Jess Franco film and it would be kind of like, it would be like, you know, non, it would say, it would say in it like non, non, non-stop perversion, perverted violence. So I'm like, oh my God, I got to see these films. So, so in a way, that in a way was probably had more influence on me that that Catholic aspect of it had more influence on me because at a very early age, as I went to a Catholic boys' school, I started to question the um, the priests what they were saying, and I also put out an alternative newspaper where I would review basically like banned films and banned books and stuff like that, and would give it out as the alternative school newspaper. And I got into all kinds of trouble for that, and almost got expelled for writing a really um, graphic story about a, se- a priest having sex with a nun at the school. So I was always really drawn to the forbidden, and I think in a way that really um, probably was informed because you know Catholicism is, is almost constantly warning you against the forbidden, but by doing so, it highlights the forbidden. Because you know, rather than just ignoring it, it's always saying, oh, that film there is shocking. You should never watch that film. Yes, that film there. And so, of course, as a young Catholic, you go, hmm, didn't know about that film until now. And now that you've told me about that film, I'm super interested in that movie. What are three films aspiring filmmakers should see in terms of just learning the nuts and bolts, but also maybe uh, so they can see how a low budget or a zero budget film is made? What are three films that you just think are just really valuable for aspiring filmmakers to see like that? I'd say one a very good low-budget film, I think they did a very good job, um, is uh, the, the Gaspar Noé film, I Stand Alone. I, I think that's a, that's a really good, yeah, really good example of a low-budget low movie. Um, I'm trying to think of something else. They don't necessarily need to be low-budget, but something that uh, uh, someone who's going to work in, in, in low-budget can learn from, and it might be, it could be Hitchcock, it could be anything where they learn some kind of nuts and bolts that's going to, uh, you know, leave them uh, uh, more prepared or, 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 or have, a, have a stronger yeah. idea of, of how to put something together. Well, I would say, yeah, actually, I would probably say Taxi Driver is a good example because it's a really good example of how to, of how to have, you know, because sing- it's, it's, it's about a single character. So you don't, miss, and, I mean, so, so, so as I stand alone. I mean, um, these are films about singular characters. And in a way, I think it'll... It's efficient. Yeah. Yeah, because I think in a way with, um, you know, if, if, if you make, I mean, you even like have a film like, um, you know, that Australian film, I think it was called The Magician, right? Yeah, The Magician is a um, similar thing, single character, because it enables you to have a bit more control than over um, where you go in terms of, you know, because the camera is on the main character so much, you, you're not forced to, to constantly be cutting away to what other characters are doing and what everyone else is doing, which also broadens out the cost of the movie, broadens out the scope of the movie. But I would say, yeah, that Taxi Driver is really good. Another film that's a huge favourite of mine, and certainly a bigger budget film, it's a German film, but I think it's such an amazing movie in terms of 
what you can do in cinema, and you can break rules, and you can mix fantasy with reality, and that's um, Volker Schlondorf's film, um, The Tin Drum. Right, yep. That's that's one of my all-time, that's actually one of my all-time favourite movies, and, I, and it, it, had, it was kind of like a huge influence on me, just because, just because it was, it, it just mixed so many elements together, you know, because it's set during World War II, it's about this little boy who doesn't want to grow, so it's like a, sort of like a weird sort of dwarf. And but it's kind of like the world seen through his eyes, and his eyes and his perspective is very kind of distorted, but it's also very honest perspective. And in a way, it's it's a, it's another thing where it's a very very strong central character, and everything is seen through the eyes of that character. I mean, I tend to like stuff that's very much about character, and and where the thinking within the movie is not binary. I mean, I think binary thinking is the is the death of us all. This idea of black and white. You know, I think that there's nothing worse in film and in in real life. That I tend to really be attracted to art that's that's grey because to me that's what life is. Life is grey. It's not it's not it's not black and white. People are too complex for it just to be black and white. So I think the Tin Drums a real superb example of just like what you can do with voiceover. Um, it also mixes stocks as well. They they have some sequences that are sped up as well, so they look like silent film. Um, his his narration's good. They also have you know elements of magic realism as well. Um, so it's kind of breaking. It's it's breaking the rules of it's breaking the rules of that of of like of not mixing genres because I've always mixed genres, you know, and that'll either be the death of me or it's going to be something I'll you know maybe end up being remembered for at least by a couple of people. That I I find it very restrictive. Going um, oh, okay, this is just a horror. I can understand. I mean, and it's just natural for me. It's not like I try to mix. It's just um, the stories do mix. But I understand why marketers have to say, okay, but we're going to market it as a horror film. Because then I go, oh, all right, well, that's fine. Because even Purgatory Road, it's marketed as a horror film. Well, I could also equally market it in a way almost like as a drama, as like a crime drama. You know, because, it, it, because it's, not about, it's, not, it's not about a killer on the loose. It's not, a, it's not really about um, monsters. It's, there's no supernatural elements to it. Um, but it's, it's just got a bunch of elements that just happen to be what it is. But I, I find it very restrictive when people kind of want to force you to do something like, well, maybe if you rewrite it and make it more about this, um, that's to me when you start. I mean, that's that's when it starts getting killed by a committee um, attitude towards, well, let's try to make it as commercial as possible. Well, you usually end up creating shit from doing that because all the films that we love and we that and the world got influenced by, very few of those were movies that were made that way. Your latest film, Purgatory Road, will be the opening night film at the Melbourne Underground Film Festival, or MUFF. When is it playing and where? It's playing on Friday, October the 26th. It's actually south of the city um, um, in Moorabbin. Well, uh, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. There's been a lot of insight um, in, in this episode, and I, I really hope that uh, uh, young aspiring filmmakers are listening up uh, to this, so maybe they don't waste years in the process of making films. I, there, there's just so much time wasted. I think you. I hope so. Yeah. You you got a lot of a, a, a efficient advice, uh, and uh, you, and you're a really good filmmaker that makes really strong, bold work, which um, uh, you know I I hope Australia continues to produce. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Well, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. <laughs> phone call.
Social justice warriors and political correctness enforcers. You know, essentially, I've got a very clear message for you now. You can get fucked.